Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Fantasy. I am your host, A.E. Lanier. Today, I will be speaking with both halves of M.A. Carrick about their new novel, Labyrinth's Heart, the final book in their Rook and Rose trilogy. The Rook and Rose trilogy is set in the city of Nidrezra. Oh, we'll get into proper pronunciations later. Apologies, everyone. And follows Rin, a thief who grew up in the slums of the city and has returned to con her way into a noble family, as well as Grey, a detective with ties to that family Rin is trying to break into, and Vargo, a crime lord working to make himself legitimate in the eyes of the city. M.A. Carrick is the joint pen name of Marie Brennan, the author of The Memoirs of Lady Trent, and Alice Holmes, the author of The Adventures of Mr. Mystic. They are both joining us today from their homes in California. Hey, y'all. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. And for clarity, I should probably add, I'm Marie. <laughs> and I am Alice. <laughs> and given that we are talking today about the third book in a trilogy, we're going to start off trying to be spoiler free for the trilogy as a whole, and then we will transition into talking about Labyrinth's Heart specifically later on. So we'll give sort of a spoiler warning for anyone that is new to these brilliant books. Uh, but yeah, also, y'all have a Kickstarter started yes we we are uh probably by the time this airs it will have launched we're doing a kickstarter for the pattern deck which is a set of oracle cards or think like a tarot deck uh that are featured very heavily in the story we have in fact used them in crafting the story and we have wanted this whole time to make a deck that will be prettier than the blank cards i wrote on with sharpie so <laughs> that is what we are currently kickstarting and uh fingers crossed for success so yeah, feel free um, if you're listening to this in the first week or two that it's come out, it, that Kickstarter should absolutely be running. Definitely check it out. And so, I think it'll be running through the beginning se- of September. Yeah, September right. 5th is when it ends. So up until then, you have a chance to back. Very exciting. Can y'all start by just telling us a little bit about this project? What drew y'all to this trilogy? What's exciting about it? All that good stuff. <laughs> uh, well, so the, the backstory for it is um, thoroughly nerdy, uh, which in brief is that there's a, uh, a tabletop RPG that Alyssa's running where I'm playing this con artist named Ren, who might sound slightly familiar to people who have looked at the books. And we had, there were some things in the game that weren't going to involve the other players and weren't going to work very well as game stuff. So we said, well, what if we just write it as a scene together? That'll be fun. And we open up a Google Doc and we write a scene. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, that was fun. So we wrote another scene and then we wrote another one. And then I realized we had written about 50,000 words of fiction for the game. Uh, so we thought, let's collaborate on a novel. <laughs> and, and it took us an embarrassingly long amount of time to for us to go, wait a second, let's collaborate on this novel because we were brainstorming all sorts of other ideas. And so, yeah, but we finally came back to this like home territory. Yeah. 
yeah, so we we basically had a certain core set of characters, um, not the other like player characters from the game, but certain NPCs, and specifically the relationships between them and how those had kind of changed over time. We said, okay, we want that dynamic. Now we need to completely rebuild the world and the plot and everything else around them <laughs> to make that go. Yeah, we're like we have the we have the emotional fuel. Now we just need to build the new engine that you know is our own engine. Yeah. Yeah, for a while I said we had invented the invertebrate novel because we had all of this tasty meat, but no spine to hold it together. <laughs> but we're also both, our background is both in anthropology, and so we were more than happy to be set free to create a world all our own that that could be the setting for this. Yeah. And it is such a rich and deep world. And one of the things that for me is really exciting about this trilogy is it's mostly set within one city, which allows you to go really, really deep and complex in the kind of way that life actually is. And it is really difficult to do in fiction. So could you all talk a little bit about the setting and sort of the layout and all of the place that everything's taking place in? Well, I will say that the the... Uh, the fact that it is in one particular city is kind of harkens back to the game because when I was planning on running the game, I was like, hey, I want this not to be like a, a game where you're going out all sorts of traveling and adventure stuff. I want this to be a city game where you can really build relationships and knowledge of place and where you, you care about the place so that when I threaten and destroy it, you know, you're you're invested in that. Um, so, so, yeah, so... <laughs> I would say Alyssa reveals their sadism, but it's not like it was a secret. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the nature of running a game. Yes. Oh, being a writer, I, I, really. Writing, it's yeah. Deal. Yeah. And writing, uh, yeah. But yes, we, we both, um, you know, there's appeals on both ends of it, because if you do have a story that goes to different places, then you can show a lot of variety uh, and explore sort of like different options rather than it all being the same flavor. And so I think I kind of go back and forth a little bit between wanting to show the scope of the world and show how many different things there are in it, and then wanting to settle down in one place and explore it in depth. Um, you know, I'm just kind of on the explored in depth end of things at the moment. <laughs> and I think one of the benefits of, of having Nadezhra be a, a port city where you've got all this different trade coming in and different, um, uh, all of the big world comes into this tiny, in this small world, and you get all of these big global kind of conflicts in a, in a microcosm between when you have this kind of, you know, crossroads between different places. Yeah, and when I said the scope of the world is if that requires you to travel, we realized early on in this process that, you know, for our sins, we had put ourselves in a position where every bit of world building we had to do two or possibly three times, <laughs> because... Anything you care to name, whether it's clothing or food or religion or whatever, we had to invent. How do the Leganti do it? These are the colonizing people in Nadezhra. How do the Versenians do it? Those are the people uh, whose city Nadezhra originally was. And then often we had to think about what's kind of the place where over the last two centuries those things have melded. What kinds of hybrid ways are there? Uh, plus bits and pieces of other cultures that kind of drift in and out of the story. But yeah, we, we ended up having to show quite a lot of scope in one city because of that political situation. And Rin in particular is sort of poised in an interesting place within the class structure as she's attempting to break illicitly into the nobility, but also sort of racially or ethnically as well and culturally. Mm -hmm. Could you all talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this is something that had been baked into the character in the game version as well. And so we wanted to keep it for the books that, yeah, I mean, she is somebody who in, in you know modern terms, we would call her biracial, um, but she was raised by her mother, you know, kind of in her mother's culture, but as a bit of an outcast because her mother was cast out by her people. Um, so she doesn't really fit in anywhere in this particular uh, like cultural map. But Ren having been, you know, recruited into a gang of child thieves by a horrible woman when she was young, uh, got taught how to fake the other side of it to a high degree. And so, yes, she's very much got multiple personas going on. And one of the important things for her as a character is that Renata, this, you know, foreign noble woman that she's pretending to be coming in uh, and conning the Leganti, that's not who she really is. But there's a sense in which Arenza, her Versenian persona, isn't her either. Because Arenza is who Ren 
Anne is being when she's pretending that she fits into Versenian culture and she's fully Versenian and she knows all that stuff and, you know, totally fits in. Neither one of those is really her. And so a chunk of the personal conflict for her through the series is that sense of almost all of the time that she's interacting with anybody, with a few select exceptions, she's wearing a mask and she doesn't get to be herself. She's always having to perform one culture or the other. And masks are an important part um, in really all of elements of Nidrejan culture and also obviously in the trilogy itself. The first name, the first book takes its name from that. Can y'all talk a little bit about masks and maybe their cultural significance and also like the fun things that you get to do with them as writers? <laughs> well, we certainly get to do a lot of metaphor as we're writing, like the oh, sheer yeah. frequency <laughs> with which masks come up as ways of describing things. Um I think it was something where, like, certainly people have identified it as one of the Italianate aspects of the setting, because Nadezhra is built around a bunch of canals and such, so it definitely evokes Venice. The Leganti names are kind of Italianate in style. We have these masks. Um, the Italian aspects actually don't necessarily go a lot deeper than that, but the masks we knew, number one, it was going to be a great metaphor for Wren, and number two... A chunk of the religion was actually born out of me being really pissed off at Dungeons and Dragons world building, where you get these <laughs> evil gods that people just worship in a like, here's the goddess of disease. Yay, disease. Let's go spread disease everywhere we can. I'm like, that's not how religion usually works. <laughs> it's normally, let's pray to the goddess of disease so she doesn't make us sick. And that gave us the idea of these um, kind of like... I. I Bipolar is not the word I want. Dualistic. There we go. That's the word. Uh, <laughs> deities, where they would have a benevolent aspect and a wrathful one. So you'd have one deity who is both health and medicine and disease and poison and such. Um, and we ended up dubbing those the faces and the masks. Uh, so it, I think it came in from a couple of angles there. Yeah, because I think also, um, you know, one of the uh, uh, one of the characters in the book, and this is where we're going to, you know, not say much about this because spoilers, um, is a masked vigilante. And this has been this is a, a kind of folk hero that's been around for 200 years since the colonization of the city. And, um, you know, so we already knew we had that kind of like, the intrigue, the kind of romance, the 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 swashbuckly almost aspect of this masked vigilante, like drawing on like Zorro and Scarlet Pimpernel, and and you know this kind of rich tradition of of uh, this particular type of character, and so you know we have, uh, you know Ren with her the con artist with her and and the the con artist and the the feeling like she doesn't really sit in any culture having her masks. We have you know the vigilante. Uh, the rook wearing his masks. We have um, this uh, crime lord uh, Vargo, uh, who is uh, kind of trying to present a, a cultured face uh, of himself to to be legitimate, but has all sorts of scurrilous activities going on, and um, you know, uh, potentially not as as uh, honest or above board in his work dealings with Ren and other people um as as he might appear and we've got you no know, gray this this uh Versenian uh, uh who is he's he's Versenian the, the the colonized people but then he's also kind of he's a captain in the city guard basically and so he's again kind of doing the the, the straddling between two worlds, the walking between two worlds of presenting himself as, as, you know, the good Versenian who is help, you know, is, is kind of going along with the order, you know, and, and trying to make things work in a way that maybe isn't sustainable for him or <laughs> the city. <laughs> yeah. We've got a lot of characters playing different roles. And so the masks were just applicable across many, many characters. Um, and masks and faces also lead into one of three magic systems that you really have in this book series. So can y'all talk a little bit about pattern, how that works, and Rin's relationship to it? Yeah, pattern, um, again, that's something where in the game we had Ren being a fortune teller. And so that was something where we had so much fun with it in the game because we would actually take the cards that we were using and deal them out for real. And whatever I dealt out, I would then make a roll because it's a game to see how well I could interpret them. And then it was Alyssa's job to look through them and say, okay, what do you... <laughs> how, how do I fit my plot into what these cards say? Yeah. Um, 
Which, which is a creating writing endeavor, endeavor all on its own. <laughs> yeah, but we actually enjoyed that enough because it worked well enough in the game that we thought, let's try to do this in the novel as well. So we knew that we didn't want it to just be a tarot deck with different names slapped on top of it. So it's built on a different structure than a tarot, though it's the same general idea. It's cards that you can use for fortune telling. You can also play games with them. Uh, but yeah, we, we built it up um, around, we decided on three suits uh, that they refer to as threads because the minute we named it the pattern deck for Senian culture turned into like textile motifs ahoy. Uh, there were just textiles everywhere in their culture all of a sudden. Um, so yeah, the suits are called threads. And so the spinning thread is the inner self. It's like the mind and spirituality. The woven thread is the outer self, its relationships and social institutions. And the cut thread is the physical self. So like the material world and such. Um, and we built the faces and the masks into that as well. Those are kind of like court cards for it, where you get these cards that kind of represent certain Versenian deities. Uh, that one was kind of my baby to cook up. Uh, and then Numenatria, the second one was... Well, let, let me let me give the story of how this began before Alyssa says anything about what it is. We started with just a wild idea of, I think maybe Alyssa said, sacred geometry is cool. What if we did something off that? And I said, oh, there's this book that I read that I think would be super helpful. Here, let me loan it to you. And Alyssa goes away. This is like on a Friday. And after they left, I had this moment of, oh God, the last time I read that book was in high school. What if it's actually really dumb? What if the book that I've just loaned is actually incredibly stupid and Alyssa's going, why did you give this to me? And Monday I get this like five page document going, here's Numenatria. <laughs> <laughs> the book was not dumb it's actually fantastic and i can i can go grab it off the shelf because i can see it right now and then i can give you the the title of it um, I, I can give the title um it's a beginner's guide to constructing the universe is the the first part of the title and it's by a guy named michael schneider it has two subtitles one is like a mathematical journey from one to ten and i forget what the other is but it's it's all about numbers and where they show up in nature and culture and what we associate with them and how do you do the geometry with them? Yeah. And, and yeah, I basically, I, I, I blitzed through that book, uh, went into a lot of other kind of resources again around like kind of, uh, uh, sacred geometry and the kind of, um, numerology and stuff like that. And, uh, it really ended up, I don't think this was our original concept, but it really ended up being, um, pattern for the Vicenian people being their kind of magic that, that they were close to culturally, um, being a very uh, kind of intuitive system about uh, social connections and the kind of relationships between people and um, and very much being a, a, a uh, well, like I said, intuitive because it's divinatory, you know, more than anything else. Um, although it does expand out a little bit from that, the more you get into the books. Um, and then Numenatria being much more kind of rational, logical, numerically based. Uh, it's the way it works is basically these, these grand figures that get uh, uh, laid out um, on the ground, or, you know, uh, uh, you have smaller figures that are like drawn um, or painted or something like that. And uh, much more about uh, the kind of, um, it's funny because we, I say rational, but then it's it's all about like intuitively what do these numbers mean and how they react. But the way the Leganti imagine themselves as being, you know, again, very kind of Latinate, very um, uh, uh, structured and and uh, codified in their approach to everything is the way that Numenatria is kind of a reflection of that kind of cultural identity or that cultural identity is a reflection of how Numenatria ends up working uh, for them. It's kind of, you know, chicken egg. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it, Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say, then there's imbuing, which is the like neglected stepchild of the lot when it comes to our magic systems. That was actually the hardest for us to show because it's the most subtle in a lot of ways. It was just born out of an idea that had been rattling around in my head for years of a magic system whose sole effect was to make things do whatever they do better. And so the Rook, our, our hooded vigilante, for example, the hood just casts shadows that you can never quite penetrate because one of the things a hood does is hide the face of the wearer. And also, no matter what the Rook does, it will never fall off his head the way a real hood might. Like the wind is never going to catch it and just blow it back. Um, but 
kind of like with pattern being more intuitive, imbuing doesn't get a lot of respect in the setting because you sort of can't teach it. You achieve imbuing when you reach that state of flow in something that you are making or performing, that moment where the world just kind of goes away and you're wholly caught up in what it is you're doing. That's imbuing. You're putting a bit of yourself into whatever you're making. Uh, but you can't teach somebody to do that. You just teach them the skills of the craft. <laughs> and it is kind of fun because as much as these seem very different, there's a, there's a core thing that links all of them, which is this kind of idea of, of, of putting yourself, your energy, you know, into whatever it is you're doing, whether it be like laying a pattern or uh, uh, making a numenot. And imbuing is honestly kind of the purest form of that in all its multiplicity of, ex of expressions. Um, but uh, so as much as it seems like there are three different magic systems, there's things at the core that kind of uh, uh, unite them or or make, you know, uh, they're drawing from a single kind of way that stuff works in this world. Another thing that does a lot of that leveling or layering in sort of the same way that you have these different magic systems that are connected to culture and have different sort of overlaps is the family structures in the city as well, which are incredibly complex. And honestly, I think one of the most fun parts of the book is that there's a lot of, or of the trilogy rather, there's a lot of different ways that people are in relation to each other and a lot of different ways to give weight to those relationships. So I was wondering if y'all could speak a little bit about that before we switch into talking about Labyrinth's Heart in particular. <laughs> yeah, I'd say one of our guiding lights in doing a this especially came up around the family stuff, is that we did have discussions about we didn't want this to be a setting where, oh, the Versenian way of doing things is the good way, <clears throat> and the Legante way of doing things is the bad way. Uh, that it's not a, a simple one culture good, other culture bad. And so we really wanted to show how they have different conceptions of family. For Versenians, it is all about blood, whereas Legante culture has much more of a sense that you can kind of form families or dissolve families with other people. Versenians say that they're very contractual about it because they look down on this way of doing it. Um, but frankly, like both the it's very contractual and we can just cut you out whenever we feel like it, like that can be bad, but so can blood families, as many people know from personal experience. Like both of these ways can be wonderful and they can be toxic. So we wanted to show that both of those are inherent in these systems rather than one being the good one. Yeah. And I think we also wanted to explore the, the different ways that uh, relationships can be both kind of publicly recognized and also, you know, emotionally legitimized um, because we have, uh, uh, you know, Ren has her, her sister, um, Tess, who is not her blood sister, but Versenians still have a way of acknowledging these kinds of uh, uh, kinships that are, are more than just friendships. And so uh, uh, Ren has with her, her childhood friends, this kind of this oath. And we, um, it's funny because when we were discussing this might get into spoiler territory, so we might not wait on this. But I was thinking about the, we, the the three different ways, including the one very special way that we kind of codified ways that people can uh, uh, acknowledge the importance of their relationships in a, a ritual kind of um, more publicly acknowledged fashion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I really love about that as well is there is a lot going on in this trilogy, um, but sibling relationships are really central in a way that, as someone who's extraordinarily close with my sibling, is so rarely represented unless it's coming with like a huge amount of baggage. Like sibling relationships are so often just shown as these deeply traumatic things. And there definitely is some of that, right? Um, Gray has an older brother who has died before the books begin, and that is a defining part of his experience. But... Also, sibling relationships are just allowed to be like powerful and foundational in the way that they so often are. And that's so much fun. Um, and the other thing that I sort of wanted to touch on in the family structure, and then we can start getting into the nitty gritty of Labyrinth's Heart, is these books have definitely been described as sort of queer norm. And I think that there are lots of ways in which the family structures as well sort of create more space for queer relationships. So I wondered if y'all could talk really briefly about that before we transition. Um, well, I know that that one of the reasons that we we wanted to have a queer normative world is because you know I'm I'm queer both sexuality and gender identity, and I, I, I like I think there is it is important to have 
stories that are about the the difficulties that uh, uh, queer people encounter um, navigating the world and everything like that. But you know, there's also the element of of that can be exhausting when you're constantly reading like worlds like that, especially in fantasy worlds where you don't need to reflect the the kind of contemporary or historical uh, issues. And so, you know, at some level, there's just kind of a sigh of relief to to walk into a story where it's just something that is accepted and the world is shaped to acknowledge and celebrate and and create space for that kind of a thing. Uh, I'm getting a little choked up because, yeah, it's just like you breathe a sigh of relief. You don't have to tense up as you're reading because, you know, you're going to run into, you know, something that's painful. Um, so I think that was important for for both of us to to have that kind of story to to create that, and uh, then as anthropologists, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's just so many ways that th- throughout the world and throughout history, gender has been understood, sexuality has been understood, that is even different from you know the current spaces that we've carved out for for those expressions now, and so you know kind of looking at what what are the cultures that we have and how would those cultures develop to have space for these things um, and to acknowledge and celebrate them and how would those be different and how would those maybe even not be, you know, necessarily the best or the the, the most amazing way, just different and differently understood and expressed. I don't know, Marie, if you want to go into more detail. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like one of the first things that we thought about is, okay, if same-sex marriage is permitted, then what do you do about inheritance? Because so much of human history is based on the idea that the person who should inherit is your blood, like the, the child of your body or, uh, you know, your issue. Uh, and so some of the inspiration there was, I've read a fair bit of Japanese history. It was actually very widely accepted in Japan a lot of the time to adopt an heir for your household if you didn't have a son or if your son was just a wastrel and not actually a good heir. Uh, There was much more acceptance than you got in, say, Europe of just, okay, adopt somebody who's suitable. And so we're looking at that going, well, that could be a solution here, that if it's a same-sex marriage, you just adopt an heir, and that's fine. Um, There are things also where we didn't necessarily try to build every possibility into the cultures. Uh, In particular, because we'd started with that face mask duality, there's actually a core of dualism that's sort of baked into the setting on a metaphysical level. And so gender-wise, both Legante and Versenian culture, they have their own ways of conceptualizing the idea of being trans, and they're fine with that um, in their different ways. They're not identical in how they think about it. But there isn't actually a culturally constructed idea of like a third gender or a gender or anything like that. There's nothing that's going to go sideways from that binary. doesn't mean that such people don't exist. It just means the cultures don't have that built into how they think about this. So it's not like it's a complete everything is worked into it here. I think in part because, again, we're anthropologists. And so we are going, okay, what are the specific practices we want to look at and say, how does that play out? And we're not going to try to do all of them. We're going to focus on a few. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Yeah. And I, I think that that is part of what makes the setting feel more real as, as a queer normative setting, because it's not just taking what our contemporary understandings of these things are and layering it on this other society. We're looking at that other society and being like, okay, with these as our building blocks, how do we build something that makes sense for these, these societies while still making space for that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And these books do that so, so well as someone that also loves like deep, consistent cultural building and stuff that's very gay. These books do like such a good job of being super queer and super culturally consistent in a way that is so fun. Um, And if you've not read them at all, you should go pick up the first one now. Mask of Mirrors, go away with you. This one comes off out August 15th. You're welcome to stay around technically, although I will say I'm not like a huge spoilers person. Like I usually don't care. And I feel like I would have cared in this sense. So <laughs> I, I'm with you in that normally I'm like, you know, spoilers, not a big deal. Cause if knowing the spoiler wrecks your enjoyment, then it wasn't a very good story to begin with. But so much of this series is built around secrets and lies and revelations that, yeah, it's not the best one to spoil. <laughs> Preserve- there, there's a certain amount of satisfaction in being, you know, guessing throughout the entire first book who is the Rook? And as I assume that that is going to be something we will be talking about, since that is something that we find out at the end of the first book, um, you don't want to know that right now. <laughs> All right. I think we have either chased them off or they've fully made their decision. Uh, so with that, let's keep talking about vigilantes. We have by this point in book three, essentially two, right? We have both the Rook and the Rose, one of whom is inheriting this huge legacy of 200 years, which is a huge amount of time for a vigilante to be around, the other of whom is literally brand new. Um, <laughs> so I would just love to talk about that interplay a little bit, those decisions. Yeah, that was, um, again, like that That was part of the inheritance from the game is that we knew we wanted Ren to wind up with kind of her own vigilante identity. But as you say, it's not that she's just the Rook 2.0. Because that wouldn't be satisfying. Uh, It would mean that she always felt like she was in the shadow of the Rook. And instead, she's coming at it from a weird direction where it's it's a very religious thing. That the Black Rose's disguise was something that kind of got created in a miraculous fashion. And to some extent, Ren's sitting there going, okay, um, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Like, what's my responsibility with this? I know what people are projecting onto me, but that's not necessarily something I can live up to. And it's interesting because you you do get to see then the 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 rook with this you know just like two hundred century accretion of of identity as it's been passed down and the the weight of that versus uh, Ren kind of you know how does that look at the beginning and you can kind of map onto you know how that might have looked for the the rook at the beginning as he was kind of uh, uh, or they because it's there have been both male and female holders um, wearers of the mask. And I think that the role that religion plays um, for Rin in particular, but throughout these books, is something that is so interesting as well. And that, for me, honestly, is one of the things that I really like about fantasy, because we all sort of come with our own baggage to theology in the real world. But um, in a fantastical world, right, you can kind of have a different level of buy-in where everyone can be on a similar playing field as readers. And theology is really important, particularly to Ren, but also generally overall, there's a lot of thought, especially in this book, about sort of um, the afterlife and death and what it means to have different afterlives, which is a thing that is so foundationally important to, I would argue, probably most humans throughout the world history but for a lot of us living in sort of like a modern culture especially in some place like the u.s feels very distant um so i was wondering if y'all could talk a little bit about either death or theology generally and how that is important yeah religion and fantasy is definitely something that i can tell my my mind keeps going back to and part of it is because i i realized a while ago that it's not even just that i get annoyed by fantasy magic systems that are very mechanistic where they have very clear cut rules that are laid out for you it what really bugs me is the sense that many of them seem to have absolutely no connection to metaphysics 
to this notion of like the cosmos and the divine forces in the cosmos. Whereas historically, if you look at real world beliefs about magic, those things are often very, very intertwined. They're not separable from each other. And so, yeah, I, I tend not to write magic that's not in some fashion religiously linked. And so then, of course, you are getting into those questions of like the afterlife. Uh, and you do find yourself as a writer in the difficult position of going, okay, so if we have different religions, how do those interface? Like, is one of them right and the rest are wrong? If you have two different gods of the sun, who's actually in charge of it? <laughs> uh, so you have to do sometimes some, like, deeper metaphysical thinking about your world. I don't think every story requires that, but we dive pretty deep into the metaphysics toward the end, and it does kind of matter what's going on underneath everything. Yeah, and I think for, for both of us, there there's we have a lot more answers and understanding of what's going on than necessarily is on the page. And this is true, not just of the theology and, and the metaphysics, but um, uh, just also what the characters understand about how the magic works. Because um, again, with, when you've got the kind of, you know, magic system uh, where it's like a kind of mechanized thing rather than kind of an esoteric, you know, structure, um, you know, people have different levels of understanding about how things work and, uh, there's always a lot, you know, when you think about magic in terms of how we view it in the contemporary world, uh, there's a lot more mystery. And that's part of the interest and appeal is, is the kind of spaces and slippage between. And so we don't necessarily explain everything on page about how exactly, you know, Numenatrio works, or, you know, if you, you, you can't see the roll dice rolling on the page because, part of the appeal to us of a metaphysical system or esoteric system is that that slippage, that space for the kind of numinous uh, yeah. to, to exist. Yeah. And I'd say the, you don't get the rules of it on the page is just kind of our attitude toward exposition in general, not just for the magic yeah. that we would rather demonstrate things about the world, about the society, about the metaphysics, whatever, uh, through how the characters interact with them and with little details salted in here and there, rather than being able to find, ah, here are the three paragraphs where it gets explained. And yeah. that's just our preference as writers, our preference as readers. We like it when it's done in that more kind of gradual background sort of way, rather than an upfront bit of of exposition which i know drives some readers batty <laughs> they would actually <laughs> very much like us to stop and say what the heck is going on <laughs> but not all books can be all things and so yes. you've committed to one way of doing things um at the foundation really of the trilogy as a whole but certainly of this book um at the end of the last book we sort of inherited this chain of command made of medallions that <laughs> are problematic um, and I was wondering if y'all could talk a little about the medallions, um, the role that they play in this book, both in terms of like larger like plot things, but also the ways that they either allow characters to grow or prevent them from growing. <laughs> I think that's a really fun part of what's happening here. Or fun for yeah, me. That, um... You know, one of our, our core metaphysical ideas was that there are these entities uh, that they call the primordials um, who really represent kind of basic impulses and emotions, things like fear and desire and so forth. And we had fun trying to make the primordials scary. Hopefully we have succeeded. Uh, it was especially tough in the first book where we didn't want to go, primordials, by the way, they're going to be important. Because <laughs> that was like, gonna... book three. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, book two. Book two is where it starts <laughs> to really come out. But we didn't yeah. want to like wave that flag too super obviously. And yet at the same time, we needed to establish it for the reader. But the thing with the primordials is that it's not that things like fear and desire are inherently bad. But the way the power of a primordial works is it's like a rat. It. it can only ever increase on you. So there's no like backing away from it generally. And so with the medallions, it's the, all right, you've got these medallions from the primordial of desire and they're going to feed whatever desires you have that are suited to the, the Newman from the Numenatria that is on that medallion. Uh, and the funny thing is actually at the end of book two, up until basically we were in the middle of writing the scene where, okay, the medallions are having to be taken for safekeeping, we were going to give Grey and Varga the opposite medallions. And then we looked at it and went, no, it'll be so much worse if we flip them around. Because like, 
Vargo is in many be- many ways like more matched to Quinault, which is exactly why he shouldn't have it. Because that dude could become just like a dictator real easy if he just went, I can fix everything if people stop getting in my way. Vargo's <laughs> like, fashion's a great idea if I'm in charge. Yeah. Uh, but when we looked at it, we thought, okay, but if we flip them around, then that's actually going to pull out different aspects of their characters in a much more interesting way. Because giving Vargo Sessa, then it's the, like, the friendship and the social institutions and so on where it's not that that's a bad side of Vargo but still at the same time you feed it too much and it's gonna go to toxic places same with Grey and the like excellence and power aspects of the Rook or uh, of Quinnot rather that you know that's gonna make him kind of be like I have to be better in some bad ways yeah so it takes their best impulses their best selves and twists them into something awful uh which you know Rather than taking their already bad, you know, worst impulses and worst selves and twisting those. Uh, it's such yeah, a so cruel. we were literally in the middle of writing that scene when we went. <laughs> yeah, no. much more insidious. Yeah. Than, um, it's a deeply cruel thing to do, but it's also really fun for everyone that is not the characters involved. <laughs> yeah. um, but not everything is like entirely torturing people in this. We have fun antics around Ren trying to get Grey to be able to court her, which is problematic now that she's made her noble. Can y'all talk a little about that? <laughs> so the, the thing with the trials of the Volti, that was a plot that we were going to have in the game. And then at one point, Alyssa sent me this chat message being like, I'm so sorry, but by the time your characters get back to the city, that's just not going to fit what's going on there. We're not going to be able to do that plot. And so deep in my soul, there was a little bookmark that said, we are putting that in the books. <laughs> I don't care if it makes sense. We will find a way to make it make sense. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we had to do a lot of uh, plot dancing to go, all right, why is having these like trials in order to be able to ask a favor from Renata a thing that's going to be worth their time in the third book <laughs> and we're also just like because you know we had we had built this very kind of egalitarian society in terms of gender roles and so it was also the and how do we make this work in a way that it's not like a competition for Renata's hand in marriage which opens up all sorts of kind of uncomfortable you know stuff around that and so yeah it was it was it was a uh, uh, finding a lot of good excuses to to and and building a lot of good reasons to do something that we just really really knew was going to be a lot of fun it's you know like it's the competition it's, it's the competition arc right it's the, it's the beach episode as you kind of indicated like part of the reason we wanted to put it in there was because it would be fun and if we didn't have something like that to structure the story there, then it could very easily descend into everybody's just paranoid about their medallions and dealing with all of this trauma, and there was just no like life or spark. And so it was good to have something significant in the plot that would give us these more entertaining moments. Yeah. And and I think also because because this is a city-based kind of thing, there is an element of of life goes on. Like you know, things are happening. It's, it's not necessarily just all emergencies all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, you need to have those lighter moments. Uh, but then we also are big proponents of making every scene do at least three or four things. Like every scene needs to pull its weight. And so it was also looking for ways to take that, you know, entire sequence and, um, build other things into it, whether it be, uh, relationships or, uh, the tensions with uh, Latilia uh, Ren's uh, mother. I'm using air quotes. You can't see it, but they're there. Um, and, uh, you know, all of the stuff going on with Denia slowly learning about the medallions existing uh, and finding out, you know, finding out the, the the undercurrents and backstory that everybody else always already knows that they've been keeping from her because they know she'll just lose it and go on a rampage. It yeah. does feel very much like the characters consistently choosing both joy and chaos in like <laughs> where, where it'll be like apocalyptic, terrifying things are happening. And also now we're going to choose joy and chaos because we Which, can. And, and honestly, like I've come to realize that something that will put me off some of the books I try to read is the sense that there's never any spark of light in it, that it's just everybody's serious all the time. And honestly, if you look at studies of people in survival situations, 
being able to keep a sense of humor and still to find laughter or beauty or just those moments of light in your circumstances literally increase your odds of surviving horrible things. Like people in concentration camps during the Holocaust were still making jokes to each other some of the time. And being able to do that honestly helps you keep living. If you don't have that, then it starts feeling like, what's the point? I'd like to talk also briefly about the ways in which you have committed to the thought experiment of what is it like to live as a spider? Um, which I think is the kind of thing that happens so often in fantasy and no one thinks about that person and what their day in and day out experiences. Um, oh, and in this book, finally, he gets his due. And I was wondering if y'all could talk a little about that decision. I, you know, it's funny because we, so this is another character that ported over from the game and and honestly because you know D makes space for a lot of ridiculous things and my greatest fear was that like just making alceus slash mr peabody like seem like something that is legitimate to exist in this setting uh because like there is a certain ridiculousness to <laughs> the entire deal um <laughs> But I think honestly, like kind of, you know, like both getting to like have the emotional kind of depth of relationship between him and Vargo and especially the way that has changed over time, because the way they started was, I mean, deeply awful uh, uh, for Vargo in particular. Um, and the way that that kind of horrible beginning uh, uh, morphed into a, a supportive, loving kind of, you know, father son relationship. Um, Spider dad, spider, spider dad. dad. <laughs> it's on that a lot, <laughs> um, and and I may be like dedicated to uh, making a spider that even people who are arachnophobic will 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 love and cry over. Um, so hopefully we've succeeded in that. Uh, but yeah, just just uh, you know, looking at this, what could be ridiculous, and then like you said, getting into what it's like to be a spider and what it's like to be so isolated uh in 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 the way that Alcius is and to to have his entire existence come down to like this this one thing with with his family and the medallions and what happened to him and 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 everything and then when it's when it's solved and we go into the la labyrinth's heart and he, he's now got this kind of like you know new mission but he's really kind of floating on the wind to it's a little you know. bit of Inigo Montoya with the I've been in the revenge business yeah. so long now that it's over I don't know what to do with the rest of my life yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because I I there was a particular moment we hadn't really discussed like how what was going to happen with him and there was a particular moment I was driving home from a party that we had had at, at like Ren's brother's beach house not Ren Bryn, Marie's brother's too many names. <laughs> um, anyways, I was driving home from her birthday party and I, I I called her up in in the car and I was crying because I was like, I have figured out what we're doing with Alceus and it's amazing. And I need to tell you right now, I don't care if there's other people in the car with you. And I just was like sobbing, describing to her. And I'm like, I really hope you like this idea because I really think that this is what needs to happen. And yeah. Well, and just in general, what you said about like, Things that can work in a D&D &D world because ridiculous stuff happens all the time there, but trying to make it make sense in a much more like um, theoretically realistic seeming world or, or coherent seeming world. Um, but at the same time, we had to do it because Vargo without Alceus would not be half as good of a character. He needs uh, the, the term that Alice has now uh, supplied me with for this is the charm point. He needs that thing that makes him sympathetic and like approachable to the audience rather than just being the ruthless guy all the time. And like Alcius could have just been a ghost or something, but if you lose that physical presence in the world, then it's harder to make it an effective part of the story. I know because I'm trying to do it in a different story. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, we, we had to find a way to make it work because that really was an integral part of making Vargo work as a character. Well, I think so much of fantasy is often about taking things that are like vaguely ridiculous on the surface and then committing to them as almost this like ruthless exercise of empathy. 
uh, really thinking about, you know, what what would that experience be like? Um, and ultimately, I think that that is something that these books do so well. Um, there's we, just we so ended up doing there. so much random research on like, can spiders see color? Can spiders yeah. smell? Do they have a sense of smell? Like things well, we didn't and, know. And, and so much time after, especially after the first draft of Mask of Mirrors, when I went through and I'm like, wait, Alexius is a jumping spider which means that all this stuff I have about like webs and stuff like, I mean, they still make jokes about like webs and stuff, but we had like particular sequences where I'm like, none of this works because he's a jumping spider. Um, and yeah, there's a particular uh, TikTok that I'm a huge fan of, of a woman who has jumping spiders. It's like a robo Muppets or something like that. And just watching all of her little TikTok videos of her jumping spiders doing various different things and stuff is, is, if, if you are not a rapidophobic and you really want to see adorable spiders doing adorable spider things, I really highly recommend it. These books do have, for me at least, the correct amount of spider. And probably <laughs> <laughs> if you're not a spider person, they're still... <laughs> We have had friends say, you know, damn you, how did you make me like a spider? <laughs> so we could keep talking about these books for, it's like over 600,000 words, right? Yeah. It's about 650-ish. Okay. Yeah, yeah, roughly. We have, a, there's a glorious amount here. Um, and we can keep going forever, but also we should probably wrap up somewhere. And quite frankly, I personally think that adorable jumping spiders is a wonderful place to do that. Um, this really is such a wonderful end to such a fun trilogy that for me at least does feel like very much this love letter to a genre that I love so much. Um, so thank you both so much for your time, both in speaking with me today and also writing this whole thing, which has taken literal years of your life. So much <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a mixed bag every time somebody says, you know, and then I read that book you wrote in a, a single day, and I'm going, that was months of my life in writing it. <laughs> but at the same time, it is still a compliment because it means the people couldn't put it down. Yeah. And I am satisfied that I hear how many people uh, have been rereading it and finding more on rereads because I feel like <clears throat> yeah, this in particular, we layered so much and we knew so much about what was happening. We layered so much in that it it really benefits from a reread yeah like you find more yep people saying things like oh these details that i thought were extraneous turn out to be incredibly load-bearing but i didn't know it at the time <laughs> like yes we planned it that way <laughs> as someone who just binge reread the entire series for this interview i can attest that it <laughs> works very well for rereads as well um so yeah thank you both uh, I have been speaking with M.A. Carrick about their new novel, Labyrinth's Heart, which is out August 15th from Tor. They also have a Kickstarter for their pattern deck going on for pretty much all of August, wrapping up September 5th. Um, and so I will please... add that oh, yeah. uh, even if you're not interested in the deck itself, we have add-ons that include things like signed books, tea samples that are blends themed to the trilogy. Uh, Alice will be custom sewing a few sort of Vargo-style frock coats, uh, various other kinds of things on offer. So you can check it out even if the deck itself is not to your taste. So and basically a very a interesting slight, slight correction that it's Orbit, not Tor. Oh, sorry. Orbit. Oh, My yes, okay. I missed that. Good catch. I wrote it. It's right in my notes. We apologize, Orbit. It was you all yeah. along. But yeah. It was so thank you all so much for listening. Please consider feeding the algorithms that run our lives by leaving a review, liking this. You can also tell a friend in real life if that's more your speed. Um, thank you all so much. Have a great time. I will speak to you soon and happy reading. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.